forward, forward. The ride is out there, waiting, invisible, and goes on and on without us. It begins with an ancient idea in the minds of men. They are consumed with the desire to go somewhere. The distances through which they move are measured against the body and the time it takes to get there. The mile begins with the mile. The word comes from mille passium, a measure of 1,000 paces. The Romans used the foot pace only because the motorcycle had not yet been invented. And since we are who we are, together yet individual, variable yet similar, there is the Scots mile, 5,920 feet, the Irish mile, 6,720 feet, the old English mile, and the metric mile. Also the Danish mill and the German mille. We are a law-passing animal, though, as well as a movement-desiring one. So, in 1592, an act of Parliament codified the statute mile, and there it rests at 5,280 feet. The man who would stop at nothing. Long-distance motorcycling's endless road by Melissa Holbrook Pearson. Welcome to the American Roadrunner Podcast. Glad you could join us for this episode. I am your host, Bob Marshall. Here we share stories from the road, all tales from our two-wheeled motorcycle machines. Whether you're a beginner or advanced rider, on-road or off-road, wrencher, racer, commuter, or just a weekend warrior, this is the podcast for you. Named after the book, American Roadrunner. Enjoy, my fellows. We're going to get to the show in a minute, but first, a story. At precisely this moment, someone, somewhere, is getting ready to ride. These were the first words I read of author Melissa Holbrook Pearson when years ago I picked up her book, The Perfect Vehicle, What It Is About Motorcycles. Myself a rider, and at the time an aspiring writer, her words really spoke to me in all a motorcycle can be for our human race. This book was published back in 1997. Melissa's writing career has covered other nonfiction genres, but by 2011, she had written the book, The Man Who Would Stop at Nothing, Long Distance Motorcycling's Endless Road. Sometimes people do ask me where I get the inspirations to do all the things that I do, and the answer is, Melissa had a lot to do with it. I'm a big fan of her writing and her writing. I'm also a true believer in doing big things, so when I finally got up the guts to ask one of my favorites to be a guest on the show, her answer was a gracious yes. And this is where this story begins. For those of you who know me, you know it was just a little more than two years ago when my pops, my best friend, passed away in my arms. The day before that, we were in and out of hospitals after he suffered a major heart attack. I gave him this book, The Man Who Would Stop at Nothing. My pops was really excited to read it, as he was an avid reader, usually consuming several books a week, and also an avid writer. Also, one of the main characters in the book, 
John Ryan was a diabetic, just as my pops was. If you don't know who John Ryan was, shame on you. He is one who broke and holed many of today's long-distance motorcycle records and one of my personal heroes. My pops would read a bit of this book to me, or I'd read a bit to him as he sat patiently in a hospital bed. My favorite, though, was when we were sitting out on the veranda of Hollywood Casa Permanente the evening before he passed, as he unknowingly sipped decaf coffee, because that's what a good son does, serve a man who just had a heart attack, decaf, instead of regular, we were enjoying his last sunset together, listening to this book on Audible. My pops would pass the next day with this book in his hands. I reached out to Melissa a few days after that, a stranger, to thank her for all her writing, her writing, and her story, and what it meant to me and my pops. She was extremely gracious then, as she is now, and you, my fellows, are in for a real treat. It meant a lot to me to get to share her works with my pops in his last days, and it means a lot to me now to get to share her with all of you. Enjoy part one of the show, Melissa Holbrook Pearson. So, Melissa, how the heck are you? I'm great. Yeah. How are you? Good, good. Well, it's sunny over here on this side of the country. You're uh, you're way on the other side of the country. It might be nighttime already. Uh, it, it sure is. The crickets are going, and uh, I've got a real orchestra outside the window. Yeah, probably some cicadas right about now as well. I heard those are oh, big. Oh, yes. Nice, nice. <laughs> Boy, I do miss a cicada sometime. Woodstock, New York, is where you've been hanging out the last uh, several years? Mm-hmm. Good. It's a good place. I've only ridden through there. I haven't gotten to actually stop and enjoy it. As uh, and I'm so lucky. It's really pretty much every day. I I look around and think, wait a minute, how did I get here? <laughs> and why am I this lucky? Because I turn out of my driveway and I'm already on the good road. And it's very different from when I lived in New York City, and it was. You know the two-hour struggle to to start the ride. You right, know? right. So I'm blessed. Yeah, agreed. And you're living on Mac, Matt Yasger's farm. I'm just <laughs> actually Woods, Woodstock is not Woodstock. In case right. you know that whole story, right? Right. I've only heard about it. A few of my aunts and uncles were there. My parents were not, though. So that running joke was, how do you stop a hundred thousand people from trespassing on your lawn? And the answer is you give them permission, which is what Max Gasker did. So, right? Uh, no, I, you know, luckily neither you nor I were around for those set events. Not I wouldn't bad. mind. Uh, I wouldn't mind starting at the beginning. You are a writer as well as a rider, and for those listening, you're going to hear me make those distinctions quite a bit. And I'll share a personal story. It was through reading and enjoying the work of Melissa Holbrook Pearson's. I learned the difference that every, all day long, people ask me, how's the riding going? And I'm like, are they talking about my writing? Are they talking about my riding? I'm not sure. So we've gotten to do a bit of research on you around here, but the answer is you're one heck of a writer. I wouldn't mind hearing how that got going for you. Gosh, yeah, that really does go all the way back. It's funny, I was just writing a message to a very young writer who just reached out to me tonight. And wow. I saw myself in 
in her work and in her yearning to be a writer. Um, But I think it's something that you're, I don't know, maybe not born with, but it's, it's an urge that, um, certainly if you were sane and wise, you could <laughs> turn down, right? Because it's not an easy life. I mean, that's, nobody has an easy life. I Amen. don't get me wrong. It's not like, um, you know, I'm, I'm suffering. It's a peculiar kind of difficulty because it's such an interior, uh, line of work. You're with yourself. And you have conversations with yourself. And I guess I always did. I mean, ever since I was a a young kid, I mean, books were like a salvation to me when I was a young person. They were really the way out into a wider world that, you know, felt exciting and felt filled with possibilities. And, um, you know, books really just... They opened the door for me um, that felt closed as as a child. So I don't I don't know. I really can't explain it. It's it is it's one of those things. I think it's beyond explanation. But I just knew that I always wanted to be a writer. But I never let myself actually believe that that was possible sure. until after um, you know after college and after the first dead-end job where I thought, oh, my God, I cannot go in every morning, 9 a.m., and, you know, sit here and do what they want me to do. I just, you know, there's something inside me that militates against taking orders and just, you know, I I always want to upset the apple cart a little bit. I think maybe that's a necessary quality for a writer. Uh, it's like, you really want me to do that? Well, I'll show you. Right. So. You basically just explained every motorcycle rider, including myself, I've ever known as well, which is pretty darn exciting. But I think you're absolutely right. Myself, I always name it and view it as my selfish time. This is what I do for myself. Mm-hmm. This is what I do. Because I need to Mm -hmm. express. I need to express myself and I need to have a good time with it. And it seems that so much is figured out in riding motorcycles, but even more seems to be figured out for me in writing. Absolutely. And I think the two, the the confluence of the two, two activities, what I learn and discover um, about myself, about the world, both when I'm writing and when I'm riding are almost sort of parallel activities. I think they they feed off of the same part of your brain Amen. that where where there's a buried wisdom that you can only uncover by sort of traveling to it. You know, it's literally um, a geographical move to, you know, to ride into space and then to ride into um, that buried world of thought and connection. I guess that's really what I would say that both writing and writing share is it's it's a connective enterprise, right? We're like... I, you know, I, uh, boy, I'm going to get all all caught up in my 
in my thoughts here, but it's um, it's it connects you to the to the place and the moment that you exist, and it connects you to what you really think, which is not sometimes accessible if you're trying to get at it from the outside. Right, 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 right. right. You, you know, you you push and push and push and. I can't, I don't understand, and I don't know, and how do I put this? And then you get into the flow. We talk about the state of flow. Um, It might sound trite, but that's what we live when we're on our motorcycles. We know flow. Well, and I I completely agree, although I wish there was a way to ride while riding a motorcycle. I've tried (laughs) typing on my typewriter while hauling ass down the road, and it just doesn't work. Just doesn't work. No, I mean I'm always like, I'm always pulling over to the side, Are you? and you know, or and, you know, jumping off my bike and saying, "Oh my gosh, don't don't let the, that thought get away before <laughs> I can get my notebook out of the tank bag." And I've been scribbling notes with my helmet on and sweating and stuff like that because you don't want to forget it's very it's so ephemeral sometimes it's just as fleeting as the air we ride through or that scent that hits you or something and you and you need to grab hold of it i guess that's what writing is sort of is is freezing the time that would otherwise um you know escape that's that's maybe the magic of writing because you've not just written on riding motorcycles for yourself. You've written a lot on uh, relationships uh, between people and animals and the relationships that we as human uh, can and will have with animals. So for you, I think it is related to the time in which you are in your life and where you are in your life at that particular time. Uh, it's It's mm-hmm. very exciting. Uh, I've only minorly glanced some of your other works I've been able to find, uh, essays and such. But regardless, it's it's all very good. And I'm going to let all the listeners know, in case you haven't figured it out, I'm a little starstruck, everybody. So if you just bear with me and give me a minute. I've always been a huge fan of Melissa Holbrook-Pearson. Uh, a lot of people have asked me personally, you know, what has inspired me to do what I do. And the answer is always, of course, Selfish Time, where... I get to enjoy myself, a motorcycle that I've rebuilt in my backyard, hauling butt down the road, racing down a highway. But at the end of the day, the answer is going to be people who write like Melissa have a huge inspiration in my life, which I think I would relate it to as much as as Louis L'Amour, you know, (laughs) the idea to get out and Mm -hmm. do adventure, even though a lot of that is fiction and uh, your works all revolve mostly around nonfiction as as my my newer career of writing does for me. Let's talk about riding motorcycles. You got to get into that at a pretty young age and then fell asleep, as you've said, for 11 years. That, that, that was a big mistake, but, you know, sometimes we have to make those. Um, it wasn't so much a choice as something that just happened, which I know happens for a lot of people. Like, Amen. Life gets in the way or there's other priorities or you can only do, you know, a certain number of things at any given time. And, you know, that's what happened. But it did, I think, enable me to feel how truly precious um, and what a gift um, having 
encountered motorcycles was when when I experienced life without them, right. without that, um, you know, the incredible enrichment they bring to me. I mean, I know everybody doesn't get that, but that's okay. We don't all have to do the same things. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like I just want to jump up and down and, you know, collar people in the street and say, do you realize <laughs> what this is? You know, what you're missing. It's, it's crazy. It is absolutely crazy. But you know what's interesting? And here's something I really do want to explore a little more with you. Yes, ma'am. Um, you know, as both a writer and a writer, um, that I really, I, I do want to make this activity known beyond the people who already do it. And that was my intention, frankly, in writing The Perfect Vehicle. I naively thought that people who didn't ride were very curious about why people did. Right. Um, no, turns out they really don't know because they haven't experienced it. So from the outside, it looks simply like, you know, I don't know, we're taking a walk or right. we're just doing something that's so anodyne that, you know, it doesn't really bear any scrutiny. And from the inside, we all know that that's far from the truth, that yeah. I think it bears all the scrutiny in the world, there's an endless amount of things to say about motorcycling because it connects to literally the essence of life, I, I think. You know, what's interesting to me is at this point in my writing career, not being able to break through and get editors to understand that there's really something to explore here yeah. in 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 writing. I just found a complete, complete deaf ear. Um and that's frustrating to me because yeah, I, this is my this is my profession. It's what I want to do. It's um and I think I have um viable things to say. But I think you have viable think, things to say for what it's worth. I'm a big fan. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. But just it's just like from the outside, I can't I can't shout across across that distance to make people understand. And it was really just a fluke that it happened with my first book that yeah. it you know, I just hit on a couple of people who were willing to listen and then said, ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is good. This is publishable. This is okay. And then, you know, then it took off. Yeah. But um, at this point I'm finding the doors are closed, which is really interesting because there have been books written about literally every kind of an adventure that humans have embarked on. Right. Um, whether it's climbing or flying or extreme sports or hiking or skiing or running, we have tons of books about those we do. Um, out in the in the public eye. But 
motorcycling. I think it might be because um, it, you know, people see motorcyclists on the road every day, yeah. so they think this is just like sort of like, yeah, you're you're driving in a car only on two wheels. So what what could you really say about that? Yeah, I, you know? so lately my statement's been. The problem with our modern American society is that we did not come home from the hospital on motorcycles. We came home in automobiles. So we've Mm -hmm. been conditioned our whole lives to ride in cars. Now, I've been fortunate enough in my life to meet some older men. Boy, back in the backwoods of Wisconsin, I used to work up on a Christmas tree farm up there when I was a kid. But I was fortunate enough to meet the men who did not ride in a car until they were you know, 15, 18, and it scared the living crap out of them. They were so scared. They just thought the car was going 30 miles an hour. They thought they were going to die. And we forget about that. You know, it's an older generation. It'd be our grandparents' parents' generation, maybe, for lack of a better term. But we as a society had to learn to ride in cars. And for me, my, my pops was a motorcycle rider, so there was never any question. I also took a bit of a hiatus Uh, When my kids were born for motorcycle riding, I was lucky enough to come back to it and have my pops bring me back to it. And now I use it for everything. I go to the grocery store. I, you know, ride to get gas. I ride into L.A. from Riverside here if I need to, you know, whatever it may be, nine times out of ten, because I live in a wonderful weather of Southern California, I'm riding a motorcycle. And now when I drive a car, I get a little frustrated. I have to sit in traffic. I have to kind of pretend to be like everyone else. And it it really drives me nuts. And similar to yourself, I work very hard on what I can do to expound the joys of riding motorcycles. And it doesn't have to be, well, people like you and I have taken it to the extreme. We've you know, we've raced a thousand miles in a day, fifteen hundred miles in a day. I've home built choppers cross country. I mean, just the most ridiculous stuff, and that's mm-hmm. great fun. And I think it's similar to what people would do in automobiles. We just live in such an automobile society, and it's coming to a, a a head because these days some people are paying more for their automobiles than they are for their living, and it has to end. And I really think in the near future. We're going to see a society, especially in fair weather places, uh, where we're going to have standard household, uh, man, wife, or, you know, significant others, 2.3 children, uh, a nice little sedan car in the garage, and two motorcycles, because that's going to be the only way people can afford to get around, I think. Maybe some bicycles, maybe. I, I really don't know. But our suburban lifestyle of, of cars, uh, living way out in the country because there's cars, it all kind of has to change. And I know yeah. you live out in the country. I live in a historic district uh, here next to downtown Riverside. Uh, so it's real easy for me to walk a mile, you know, ride my bicycle or ride, jump on my little Honda Rebel. And, it, you know, I can do anything I need to on my Honda Rebel uh, to survive that people usually use cars for. And I'm a very normal person. I work a nine to five job. I'm a bit overweight. <laughs> I have children. I, you know, I, I enjoy life. Uh, getting out traveling on motorcycles, and I do it for a lot cheaper because it's on motorcycles. Well, the rest, the rest of the world already knows that, right? And and, and has to um, 
you know, like India is the world's biggest motorcycle market yeah. right now. Yeah. Everybody is on two wheels because automobiles are not practical and they're not, they're just not sustainable right. in, in that society and that economy. Right. Um, you know, it's just, it's just here that we've sort of skewed everything to this absurd degree to bend everything from our landscape to uh, our financial structures to support this insupportable um, idea that, you know, everybody should be in a car to do everything. It is, it's sort of absurd. It, it is. And I, I think we've come, whether we're at the top of the absurd peak now or we hit it in a few years, eventually the absurdity has to end. And bicycles are awesome, but bicycle lanes are very expensive. Uh, motorcycles don't cost anything. The infrastructure is already there. Uh, the more mm-hmm. people who ride motorcycles, if we had 10% of our population riding motorcycles instead of driving cars, we'd have zero congestion. So yeah. it's it's very exciting to see what the future brings. And I think similar to, well, you remember when they made helmet laws such a big deal. Uh, you have a helmet law in New York? Yes. Right. Do you remember what year that was passed? I don't. I I don't know. And I forget what what states surround us that don't have laws. Well, in my, my home state of Ohio doesn't, for instance. Right. And it's always so bizarre to me when I ride from here <laughs> to there and all of a sudden you cross the border and you're, you're like, you know, some guy whizzing by you on the highway, uh, you know, on a cruiser or going 80 I just think, oh, my God, really, guy? Right, Uh, right. Well, and I remember, I'm a member of uh, Abate here, uh, Local 27 here in Riverside. I serve as president on the board. And, you know, Abate being the uh, American bikers who aim to educate, and that's what it starts with. It starts with education, that even Mm -hmm. though Abate started as the anti-helmet guys, Uh, Yes, we have a lobbyist. Yes, we work very hard to make sure motorcyclists can still use the road, can still, you know, A, B, and C. Uh, The answer is it's okay in me reaching out. This is my philanthropy work, uh, you know, to get out and remind people it's okay to ride motorcycles. I'm a normal guy. I ride motorcycles. Some people, and I've heard it all. I've heard all the excuses. It's too cold. It's too hot. Uh, you know, right. it takes me too long to put my gloves on and my helmet on. Well, you'd want to put your helmet on before you put your gloves on. But <laughs> uh, I'm sure similar to yourself, we jump on our motorcycles faster than we jump in cars once you get used to it. So, Yeah, it, it, it can all be done. I think I, I, I often wonder, because I like to, I mean, you know, psychology always enters into my thinking somewhere, but, you know, how much of a response to a visceral fear um, that really can't be spoken, you know, the people are afraid of motorcycles. They are are fearsome, Um, and there's a a cultural history attached to that idea. Sure, sure. And, you know, I I tried to... cover that a little bit um you know what what role motorcycles have taken socially because that will operate on how people perceive them and the people who ride them it's it's i mean 
I know we, every motorcyclist has encountered some truly bizarre notions. I mean, I've met people who have said things like, well, you can't be a good person if you ride a motorcycle. I'm thinking, whoa, oh, okay. where did you get that idea, you know, just, right. you know, from B-movies from the 60s? I mean, that's, that's like saying strange. if you drive a minivan, you must be a slut because you got a bunch of kids. I, that's hilarious. That just cracks me up. <laughs> I apologize, right? That is so far yeah. out in left field, man. Uh, although I like minivans myself, I, I don't own one currently, but they're pretty sweet rides. But <laughs> no, the uh, the stigma is is pretty large, and I think you touch on it very well in all of your writings. Being from a female point of view, uh, or yourself being a female, I think it enables a lot of people to relate, uh, especially especially women riders. I'm fortunate enough to uh, hang out with a lot of women riders here locally. And let me tell you, they all know who you are. They're all pretty excited to hear this podcast with you on it. I'm really, I'm just so, I'm so gratified by the movement lately uh, among women riders, really just, you know, finally coming out and, and grabbing this with both hands and saying, you know, uh, look, I can do this just as well. I can do everything that you can do. This wasn't a thought that um, back when I started, women were a relative rarity on motorcycles, and you just came up continually against disbelief and um, this idea, well, you can't do this somehow, even as you were, in fact, doing it. Right, right. (laughs) You know, it's a... It's just, right. uh, you know, just really crazy nonsense. Um, people couldn't believe their eyes. And and why? You know, it's just, uh, you know, I, I'm not propelling the motorcycle. The That's engine right. is. That's I'm right. Just, so... Well, I think you hit on a very good point. I think something like 18% of new riders are, are women. And it's mm-hmm. it's a huge social impact in our country. Uh, you know, I, I get to work with a lot of women, and they all seem to have the standard concerns about riding, uh, whether it's, you know, is a motorcycle low enough? Can I touch the ground? And I have to remind them, I'm 6'2", and I only have a 29-inch inseam. You know, I've got mm-hmm. the inseam of a woman who's four and a half feet tall. <laughs> You know, so I show them how when I stop a bike, I can only put one foot down because that's all I can reach. Uh, they kind of go, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Once you get the bike stopped and the brakes are on or maybe you're ready to, you know, once you move around some of the stereotypes of can I handle the bike? Well, can you drive a motorhome? If you can drive a motorhome, you can handle a large bike. Mm-hmm. I think once you get away from those standard stereotypes and luckily they are getting lighter. Uh, a lot of them are going away. You don't need the leg power that I think people think you do. A lot of it's technique. But, uh, you know, you would have more insight on that. What What are you riding these days? Are you really concerned with how low your seat is to the ground, or, for example? Well, I I was, I was blessed with relative um, height for sure. my... Uh, gender so sure. that hasn't really been an issue and I think manufacturers are now just, it's really a matter of coming out with 
you know, a manageable, a manageable size motorcycle. I, a lot of times women come to me and say, uh, you know, I really want to begin, but I'm scared and I don't know if I can handle, you know, the bike that my boyfriend wants me to get. I'm like, excuse my French, but screw what anybody (laughs) else wants you to ride. If you don't feel comfortable, get a bike that actually feels too light, that feels too underpowered. You want to move up. You don't want to have to, um, you know, get on something that is too big for uh, a beginner of of any gender um, and then get scared. Right. Because that will, that'll stop you cold. I know so many people who have gotten on a bike that was not right and didn't feel right. And they never felt like they could master the machine. They were terrified of their own bike. And, you know, that's the surest way. You'll never feel the freedom and the joy because you're, you're, you're wrestling with, you know, these fears of what could happen and how this could get away from you too quickly. So I always, you know, that's my, I, I'm not, I'm not a technical expert by any means, but I just want to feel good. I want that motorcycle to disappear underneath me. I want to feel like I'm not battling it and I don't have, I don't want to have to be conscious every minute of how I'm pulling into the parking lot because I might not be able to pick it up again. Um, So I'm actually, I'm happy to go smaller and smaller. And right now I've got a uh, V7 uh, Bootsy, mm. a new one, <laughs> brilliantly light. And just, it really does. It's just, it's like my friend. It's not, um, it's not my um, nemesis in right. any way. And then I recently got uh, to replace an R 1150R that I had for many years. Many years, yeah. um, I got an R1200R, which I think it's maybe 40 pounds lighter than the 1150, and it's just a spectacular machine. That's I feel great. really happy on it. That's great. Well, it's amazing to hear you talk like you're not a technical expert because I might have to remind you, you've had the luxury and the enjoyment of hanging around some of the big wigs in long distance motorcycling through the IBA, mm-hmm. uh, including your good friend, John Ryan, which is uh, wonderful to read about in your book, the man who would stop at nothing on how much detail, uh, and how much you got to know him as your friend. Yeah, he would. I mean, he was just a genius in so many arenas. Um, to watch him ride, you know, when you're in the presence of somebody who is um, just is an artist. Um, right, right. It was just so gorgeous. The fluidity with which he rode, and he could take his FJR, which is not exactly 
considered an off-road machine. No, not at and, all. And, um, you know, he could take that bike, and he did take it anywhere um, in conditions that people on dual sports couldn't handle, and he could slide it around and... Um, was just a beautiful thing to watch and, and frankly he in in trying to emulate somebody with that level of skill for me it was not the wisest choice i ever made but i wanted to do what he was doing and so right, right. Uh, you know i now when i think back on some of the things i did i'm like oh goodness i'm really happy i lived through that <laughs> Uh, well, I'm really happy you did too, cause it, <laughs> and I'm real happy you wrote about it. It inspires people like me, people who have that drive, who want to race in similar fashion. I'll be the first mm-hmm. to admit, I don't think I'll ever be as fast or go as far as John Ryan, but boy, it's amazing that so much of what he did and how he did it was captured in your books. Uh, I wouldn't mm-hmm. mind getting a little personal for the listeners who don't know. Unfortunately, John Ryan passed away in a motorcycle accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, what can we say about that kind of thing? Um, Yes, it was a terrible tragedy and left so many people whose lives he had not only touched, but um, really helped shape. Um, People came out um, after his death and reached out to me and told me stories about what he had done for them, his generosity and his desire to spread motorcycling practically as a religion, because that's what it was to him. It was. Uh, I think it was much show. more important than that, if I remember correctly. Yeah, right. That's right. He did <laughs> Forgive say that, me. That exactly. Thank uh, you. Thank you for reminding me. Yes, but ma'am. He was. He was quite the evangelist. Amen. Um, a very insistent one. You know, he believed, um, and I I believe, I'm, we're not alone, that um, motorcycling improves us as human beings. Uh, and he lived that with his example, that he was uh, just a, a fine human being. And I think a lot of that was because he was a motorcyclist. Right. He never let, I know he was very public about, uh, his diabetes and he was plugged in all the time. If I'm, mm-hmm. if I know that yep. correctly, I apologize. I'm not an expert. Uh, well, unfortunately diabetes touches a lot of people. I know I'm the only member in my family who isn't diabetic and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I wouldn't mind getting a little personal and, uh, for the listeners out there who know, uh, and for those who don't know, uh, my pops passed away on me just over two years ago. And when he'd passed away, he was, uh, unfortunately, he was only 66, and he was a classic, uh, graduated high school in 1969, and always said he, maybe he hoped he died before he got old, and he really mm-hmm. did. Uh, he was in and out of a hospital for a week, and I was with him the whole time. I uh, had a massive heart mm-hmm. attack. They put a few stints in, and I think uh, the day he passed away was, uh, it was probably the day I stopped kind of managing him, and I just kind of let him be a grumpy old man, and as he kind of got grumpy being the old man what he was, I finally 
grabbed a book and shoved it in his hand. And uh, it was your book, Melissa. It was a man who would stop mm-hmm. at nothing. And we started, he started reading it. And then I pulled it up on audiobooks. Uh, for those who don't know, I have an audible addiction that needs a 12-step program. But <laughs> regardless, I pulled it up on audio. And then we'd listen to a chapter or two, and then he'd read a chapter or two. And he was so excited to hear about a man who was more diabetic than he was, who could do all these amazing things. And when it was my dad's time, it was his time. And the last thing he was doing before he passed was reading your book. I think he was up to chapter seven or eight. He was the type of man who would read several books a week. Uh, Louis L'Amour, uh, anything uh, thrill. Uh, you know, he was he just consumed books because they gave him uh, the ability to transfer to other worlds. And I think, yeah, the morning he died, he told me, uh, do you want my motorcycle? I don't think I can ride anymore. My neuropathy is too bad. You know, he's laying in a hospital bed. He's had three surgeries in the last week. And I said, Pops, you're full of shit. You know, I'm going to buy you a damn sidecar and you're going to take all the grandkids for a ride. It's going to be great. And I said, but in the meantime, here, read this damn book. (laughs) You need some inspiration, old man. Uh, Yeah. uh, Yeah, because John's story was a story of hope. Amen. I mean, every 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 minute was about going forward and out of whatever problem or challenge or dilemma he faced, whether it was because of um, his condition or whatever fix he'd gotten himself into on a bike now, uh, and <laughs> and there were and there were plenty. Um, I can imagine. It was always, I'm gonna get out. I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna ride out of this, whether it's in actuality or psychically. I, you know, I think, I think that for him, the motorcycle was a tool to perform acts in life that he wanted to exemplify in his spirit. You know, it's that's that's one of the beauties of of motorcycles as a, both a sort of metaphor and a reality is that yeah. we can use them to surpass our whatever is holding us down or back or um, in stasis. They present problems to us and. They present the means to surmount those problems. This has been part one, Melissa Holbrook Pearson. If you don't know who she is yet, look her up. You can find her just about anywhere. Stay clicked in for part two. That'll be coming out in a few days. Glad you got to enjoy today's podcast. American Roadrunner the Book can be found on the website, AmericanRoadrunnerTheBook.com. Also on Amazon, search American Roadrunner by Bob Marshall. Find it as well on most digital formats. Also on eBay and the online store at ChopColt.com. 
Try to keep up with us on Instagram at American Roadrunner, all one word, or find us on Facebook. Don't forget to check out the American Roadrunner YouTube channel, where you can find great content, including this podcast. And if you're interested in sponsoring our show or have any cheers or jeers, feel free to email us, AmericanRoadRunnerTheBook at gmail.com. This has been your host, Bob Marshall, fellow wrencher, rider, adventure seeker, racer, storyteller, and author of the book, American Roadrunner. Until next time, keep the rubber side down and enjoy your road, my fellows. Yeah.